Hi, and welcome to the LEAP podcast. LEAP stands for Leadership Education for Asian Pacifics. I'm Linda Okutagawa, your co-host. And I'm Yana, your co-host for the LEAP podcast. Welcome to season three. Our theme this season is centered on identity within a leadership context and how we as Asian Americans, Native Hawaiians, and Pacific Islanders navigate the complexities of our worlds as leaders through the lens of identity. Our hope for all of you who are listening to us is that these conversations spark new ideas and you're able to apply them in your own life. Okay, hi everyone. Glad to have you all back with us if you're listening. And I have the pleasure of introducing Akemi Mechtel, who is our Assistant Director of Leadership Development at LEAP. And she comes to us with nearly a decade's worth of experience working across the nonprofit and public sectors. She has impacted both large government systems and small nonprofits to think critically about the way race shows up in how we do our work and build better systems that decentralize power, maintain momentum, and push back against the status quo. When Akemi isn't working to change systems, she can be found spending time with her dog, reading a good book, or traveling to see friends and family. Yes, I had to just cheer at the dog. (laughs) Jan and I are dog people. We're all dog people here. That's right. So this is the third episode in a series of three about mixed race identity. And we're really excited to have this on. This, this conversation with Akemi because we want to give you, our listeners, a fuller understanding of the nuance and diversity in our Asian and Pacific Islander communities. So I'm now going to turn to Yan Nam, my co-host, to start us off. Hi, Akemi. Thanks for coming. We're so happy to have you. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. This is going to be so much fun. It will be fun. Okay, we have lots of questions to ask you, but why don't we start with the first one, which is around your personal background. Share with us anything about your personal background for those of us who may not know you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So a little bit about me. So I was I was born in Long Beach, uh, California, and I lived in Southern California until I was about 10 years old. But my dad is from the east side of St. Paul in Minnesota, which is in the Midwest. For those of you who are on the coast and don't pay attention to the middle of the country. Uh, um, and then I and so we moved there. I lived there for about 20 years before moving back. I moved back to California um, and I live in the Azusa area. And I've been here for about two years now. I'm the oldest of three siblings. I have a dog who I love so much. She's taking a nap right now. And yeah, I grew up surrounded by lots of friends and family. I'm excited to dig into this identity piece because although I mentioned spending about 10 years of my life in California, I spent a significantly bigger amount of time in the Midwest. And that was such a trip on my identity for sure. But yeah, I'm also a Scorpio, Beyonce fan. (laughs) I love a good concert, you know, all the all the simple pleasures in life. I'm you can't really miss me with anything. So I love that you said you're a Beyonce fan. (laughs) Who isn't, by the way? (laughs) Okay, that's great. Thanks for the uh, background. So this is going to make you go way back, but how did your parents meet? My parents met on a blind date, actually. So they both happened to be working at a, I think it was North Gunman, Grunman, 
it's an aerospace company. They do a lot of work in in air engineering and things like that. My dad is an engineer. My mom, this is like so corny. My dad was an engineer and my mom was an administrative assistant. And they had a mutual friend who just set them up. They're like, I think they worked in different units or like in different on different floors or something like that. And they, one of their friends, mutual friends set them up on a date and they guess how they started their date. My mom biked to my dad's house Prior to becoming an admin, she had got her beautician's license and she gave him a haircut and then they went on their date. (laughs) That's too funny. (laughs) How did you, I mean, did they share that story with you? Obviously they share that story with you, but how did they share that story with you? I I just got to say, I'm just trying to imagine your mom giving your dad a haircut and you know, just like, (laughs) how did they get to that decision? Right, I know. Well, that too. (laughs) Yeah, you know, I never heard that part of the story like that, how they got to a how they got to that part of of deciding that my dad needed a haircut. But I'm sure I am certain that it was one of those things that maybe like, was like a throwaway comment, like, oh, like, I need to like, I need to go get my haircut or something or like, oh, I look maybe I look kind of like disheveled or whatever. And my mom was like, oh, I'm I used to cut hair, like, I can just cut your hair for you. And then, <laughs> and he was like, oh, okay, and then came over, cut her hair. And then they went on went on their date. I think I I must have just asked one day, like, how did you two meet? And that that's what they shared. I think actually, I, I didn't know the haircutting part. I recently asked my dad again. Um, my mom has passed away. She passed away about t- 11 years ago now, or 12 oh. years ago now. I asked him like more specifically. And he was like, oh, yeah, she like came over and cut my hair. And then we went on a date. <laughs> but she like rode her bike over to he owned a house in Garden Grove. So she like rode her bike over to the over to Garden Grove and then cut his hair. And then they went on this date. But I don't really know many other details outside of that. But I, it's all I think it's a fun little a little nugget. The haircutting it's such a unique way to start a relationship with someone. <laughs> I will never forget that now. <laughs> it's such a vivid thing that's in my head. A chemist yeah. parents met well <laughs> at work and then the the scissors came into play. But blind <laughs> date, right? So like it wasn't right, like right, they right, had right. a conversation oh, right. at work and met. It was like they worked at the same place but had a mutual friend who set them up. Well, that's great. Thanks so much for that. <laughs> okay. So speaking of relationships. What has been the impact from a personal perspective of how having parents from mixed backgrounds influence your view of the world, you know, your relationships Mm -hmm. with others, your values, things like that? Yeah, this is so interesting because I don't think either of my parents really paid super close attention to the fact that we were multiracial children. And I think my dad being Italian and has their own culture, but is very adjacent to whiteness, right? So I don't think he really, like the elements of their culture were not, it wasn't as clearly articulated as maybe some of the things that like my mom was really, really adamant about like, you're going to eat Japanese food. You're going to like, this is how we show respect. Like when you, when we get into the house, like you have to say hi to all the aunties. Like there were, there were those kinds of cues right around, like, this is what you need to do when you get here. But it was never explicitly said like, and maybe when you go to your dad's side of the family, it'll be different. I have this one really vivid memory of getting into a fight with my mom. Actually, when I was in high school, I I had this really close group of friends and my mom was telling me like, well, friends aren't like family. Like it's different. Like family is family and like friends are friends. And I remember yelling at her like, no, like my friends are my family. Like my little like 16 year old, like 
friends forever (laughs) kind of attitude and getting older and really seeing what she meant through like just through the loss of friendships or through conflict that happens and being like, yep, like, oh, okay, like friends are friends, family is family and that and that really deep installation of what that means. But aside from that, there was never any any particular intentional or transparent or like the reason why we do this is this. It was just like, oh, at this house, we do these things. And at this house, we do those things. Like it's, but there was never like a, a why or a how. And I I think about that a lot, actually, especially now that my mom has passed around like, well, why, like, why didn't you talk more to us about what that means or what that looks like? And I think part of it was her wanting to help us be able to navigate the world. So like, when I was little, my mom used to speak just a couple of small Japanese phrases to us around like, oh, I need to use the bathroom or like, oh, like, watch out. Like, that's dangerous. Like, oh, or like time to go take a bath. Like, and she would say she would use English, but she would use Japanese words in that. Right. And I was in a preschool program where I told them that I needed to use the bathroom, but I didn't say the word bathroom. I said I don't even know the word in Japanese now, but I said the Japanese word for it. They didn't know what I meant. And then I had an accident. And then that lady who was supervising that program said, you need to teach her English words because we can't understand what she's saying. My mom then kind of stopped speaking to us that way. So I think it was like a combination of like wanting us to be able to assimilate into culture, but then also sort of, I think maybe not knowing quite how to have conversations because right, like mixed race or interracial marriage wasn't legal until like the 1960s. So like, I mean, we're not new, right? Multiracial people have existed for forever. But like, I think the intentionality that exists now and the conversations that we have now just weren't accessible to my parents when I was a kid. Yeah. Thanks for that. You actually talked about assimilation because that was one of the things that were going through. The word was going through my head as you're describing your mom and what she was telling you to do and not do. So it was that a strategy that you think that she used to help you to kind of assimilate or like adapt to the environment? Yeah, I do. I actually would say in Japanese American culture specifically, that's a pretty strong narrative there for folks who lived here during the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II. Everybody in my family has American first names. So like my I go by my middle name, which is Akemi, but my first name is Susan. All of my cousins, all of my siblings most of my aunts and uncles all have American first names and Japanese middle names as a way to like support that process. There's also like a heavy loss of language, right? My grandfather spoke Japanese. My mom spoke less Japanese. I speak no Japanese, right? So the the assimilation out of that language is really quick as well. And I actually learned this fun fact, believe it or not, from um, the guy who at Leap Steve Yokomizu, who does leap, he sets up our 401ks. (laughs) He was telling me that like Japanese Americans actually have a higher rate of marrying out of their ethnicity than other Asian American groups because of the trauma from internment, which I thought was so interesting and feels very relevant, right? My mom is Japanese. My dad is white. My aunt married a white guy. Like I have cousins who've married white folk and it's not just white, right? But like the, that percentage of dating or partnering or marrying outside of your race group, I think, is another big part of that conversation or that thread. I think it's all part of that acceleration of, you know, assimilation, right? And kind of being more American. And, I, and, and as you spoke to the trauma, especially for Japanese Americans that were part of the generation that were 
you know, their families were interned in the, uh, you know, in the internment camps or the concentration camps here. Yeah, that that was definitely a, a real outcome of all of that trauma that's happened in this community. So, you know, it's interesting because in some ways, you know, hearing what you were saying about like language, it's funny because I grew up speaking Japanese, but I think I got lucky because it just so happened that when I was sent to preschool, I was considered a bad student because I wasn't paying attention because I didn't understand English. Interestingly, and maybe more luckily at the time, there just so happened to be a Japanese speaking teacher. So I got transferred to her class, which then, you know, for me, bilingual education, I think I'm a big advocate of it because it eased my transition. I mean, obviously I could speak English well now, so not good, but well. (laughs) And, (laughs) you know, sometimes it is just about, you know, some, I guess for people getting lucky, but that also enabled me to have a better sense of retaining to the degree that I could. Not great. I lost a lot of it because I don't use it, but at least I can utilize more of it. But I'm sure that there's lots of studies done on this, but I think, you know, as generations, you know, get further and further away from the original immigrant generation, I think it's harder and harder to retain the language because Mm -hmm. you're just not using it unless you're intentional about it. But even then, I mean, it's hard to immerse yourself in, in that language in an everyday way to be able to retain it well. So that I'm sure brought about its own challenges too. Yeah, well, so language and and also, so I'm a specific type of, I'm Okinawan Japanese. So like part of like, right, like Japan colonized Okinawa and so now Okinawa is part of Japan and they, you know, it's, but it's that. And then it's also like, so we eat Japanese food, but there are some specific things that we eat that are Okinawan. So then it's like that double layer of like, okay, so there was this like deep oppression of like Okinawan culture, And then so then we got like roped in with like Japanese people. And now there's like a deep oppression of Asian Japanese folks, especially during World War II, right? So it's this like double layer of trying to like catch up to like, well, what does this mean? And how do we reconnect to it? I've been having lots of conversations with my cousins around hajichi tattooing. Have you heard of this before? It's it's like the Okinawan hand tattoos that women get. And so we've been having conversations around like, well, what does that look like? And is it appropriate for us to do that? And so much information is lost on it. And how do we like reclaim our culture? And what will that mean for us? And it's hard because a lot of folks who have that knowledge are either gone or at trying to access them through language is a real challenge, right? So I think all of all of that, all of it makes it hard. If I could just ask you, I guess I'm kind of curious about that. So, you know, you speaking about like trying to reclaim some of that culture and heritage on your Okinawan Japanese side, have you felt similar with your Italian side? Maybe it's more of a question of, is it an either or even? I mean, is that, even, you know, is it like, you know, the binary, right? Is it is it about that either or, or, you know, is it just kind of like, something that just it's a it's a blend of both yeah I think so the big difference is so (laughs) you're you're gonna laugh because this is like doesn't mean anything unless you're Italian (laughs) I feel like my dad's family is Sicilian Italian which is like the southern right it's an island it's the southern part of Italy it's Sicily which is like very different energy than like people who come from like Milan or like Venice it's a super different vibe depending on where you are from in the country. But I think the difference is, right, like Sicily wasn't colonized by Italy and then, and then like their culture oppressed, whereas like Okinawa was. And so I think they're different in that way. I also think that Italian food, especially Americanized Italian food, is way more accessible to Americans in America 
than Japanese food, right? Like even though lots of people would be like sushi, like I still have like a handful of folks in my friend group who are like, oh, raw fish, that's so disgusting. Or like I had like very intense lunch, you know, it's the Asian lunchbox moment. I had very intense lunchbox moments when I was in like elementary school around the Japanese food that my mom would prepare, but I never had that experience with Italian food. So I think there's like a, there's a difference in that too, right? Around like what gets considered normal or what gets considered good or versus like what gets considered weird or gross or smelly or and and so I think the the reclamation part is is more rooted around I never felt shame around being Italian whereas I often felt shame around being Japanese and I also often felt shame around being multiracial because it's that like element of like not ever being Asian enough or white enough to like access certain spaces and I think those were some of the conversations that just never happened for me when I was little. Like my parents, or not even little, like little into high school, into college, like I didn't really, like college, I think was the first time that I really started thinking about my identity and kind of what that meant, like more intentionally. Whereas like in high school, well, you know, in high school, everybody's just trying to survive. So it doesn't really matter what your identity is. I mean, it does matter, but like, you're not really thinking about that, right? You're just trying to think like, how do I get through the hellscape that's high school? But I think that's the big difference there, right? It's like, I've never, I never in any way felt shamed or ashamed, or I never was shamed for the Italian part of my identity. Whereas the, the Okinawan or Japanese part, especially in conversations around World War II, is just so much more shame and so much more oppression. So I guess that's kind of where I see the difference. Kimmy, I'm just kind of like, I think I'm just kind of trying to sit with what you just said. It's, this is what I mean by like, you know, there's such nuance in these conversations around race and identity. And even within a community like the Asian and Pacific Islander communities, I mean, you know, everybody just assumes that we're this like monolithic group, but there's so much more to it. And it's interesting to me hearing what you just spoke about, it it almost speaks to this kind of like push-pull of the kind of privilege that you had because of your Italian side. But then there's also this kind of like marginalization that also occurs because of your Okinawan Japanese side too. And just it's not to say that it's always going to be the either or, but you spoke and you refer to this, you know trying to be enough for one and not enough for, you know, another and vice versa. And I want to refer to something that you wrote in the Leap blog post that's up on our website right now. And it really struck me when I read it. And when you were just talking now, it really made me think about what you wrote. You mentioned in that post, you said you try to make yourself invisible. And could you speak Speak to what made you want to do that? Yeah, I think so. Right. There's this strong cultural value, I think, that exists in lots of cultures, but this this value of like respecting your elders, right? And so in the hierarchy of power and education systems, right, like the elders are your teachers. <laughs> and so the thing that you're you're mentioning is I had a my dad went to a school conference and the teacher told him that he didn't remember who I was and that him not remembering me was a good thing because that meant that I wasn't a troublemaker. And I think it, that very much aligns with like how I thought about like my culture and my values and what that meant and the way that my mom tried to instill in us what like the value of respecting your elders meant. 
And so I think for me, I was like, oh yeah, I don't want to cause trouble. I don't, I don't want to bring shame upon my family. <laughs> like I also was the oldest kid in my family. So I had two people coming up behind me because we would hear it all the time. Oh, you're so-and-so's sibling. Oh, they, man, talk about a troublemaker, right? Like I didn't want to be that for my siblings. I actually had, my sister had a teacher of mine in high school where he forgot that he taught me. He forgot that I was in his class. And my sister was, she was like, you taught my sister. And he was like, no, I didn't. But he was like talking about like how a great role, how great of a role model I was. And I'm not even sure where he, if he doesn't remember me, I don't know where he got that from. It must've been maybe like another, maybe another teacher or something like that. Or my brother and I were pretty close in age. So maybe my sister is five years younger than me. So maybe that, but he goes, oh, well tell your sister. He's like, tell your sister like most responsible, but least memorable like of the siblings. And so that, so that attitude of really trying to be like, I don't want to cause trouble. If they know my name, that means I'm in trouble. I just want to like keep my head down, be a good student. I think that attitude is really held a lot in our community. And I think I would say the moment that it changed for me actually, and you can, I think I can even maybe tie it back to my siblings as well, was like my mom passed away and that pillar in our family was gone. So whereas like my sister had this really friendly relationship with that teacher, like they were good friends where she like she was a very smart girl, just did not like school very much. And and she was like, will you write a letter of recommendation for me? And he's like, I'll write you a letter, but I'm not going to lie for you. Like they would tease each other. Right. I would have never dared to do that. And so like, I don't know how I don't know what the psychology is behind it. Or I don't know if there was like something that like clicked for me or was weird. But I, I do know that like getting to college really was a space for me to feel I just felt more empowered. And I think because of what I mentioned in my blog, I had people who who empowered me to feel like my identity was okay. But like, when you're going to a school in the suburbs, and everybody you see around you is white, and you're the person who's different, right? Even though I went by my, I, my first name is Susan, I went by Susie, right? Like, I have this very white name, I would always get like, what are you? And then like, I would go, oh, well, like, guess, oh, Indian, Native, one one person said I they thought I was black. <laughs> but this right, this wide array of like, oh, we don't know what kind of different that you are, but we know that you're different. Oh shoot, I don't want to be different. I want to be the same. Like, how do I make myself smaller? Right. And that followed me from high school to college to grad school. It still follows me. People will will assume things about my identity that just aren't correct or they'll ask me or whatever. But it's it's that idea of like. We don't know what kind of different you are, but we know that you're different. And so this idea of wanting to be invisible, I don't want to be different. I just want to like keep my head down, do what I got to do, and then and then move on. I think you could say that that's like a, there's a survival technique in that, or maybe like it was okay, you know, like past me would go to like high school me and be like, girl, just be who you are. <laughs> like If you don't want to have relationships with these teachers because like you don't relate to any of them, that's fine. But don't do it because you you don't think that you deserve to or that you don't think that you can, right? I don't know. I hold a lot of that when, I, when I'm thinking about identity. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Leap Podcast. Don't miss a special live episode with author Min Jin Lee on Thursday, July 20th, 2023 at our annual Leap Celebration sponsored by Target. This year's celebration theme is Finding Our Way. Please support Leap and buy a celebration ticket today at leap.org forward slash celebration. You know, I'm always thinking about like 
language and how words matter. And you, when you're thinking about diversity or inclusion, like how you describe yourself, how others describe you, that matters, right? You painted a really great picture of like wanting to be invisible, wanting to like not be different so to speak, right? Different in quotes. So there's so many ways to describe being mixed race, biracial, you know, a different normal. Another uh, guest said a different normal, and he identifies as being mixed or 200%, 100% of this and 100% of that, right? How would you describe yourself now, you know, with the knowledge that you have, that you've gone through? How would you describe yourself now? Yeah, I would say that I'm a mixed kid. And for the longest, I would do that for the longest time. I know that that's not all, that's not a vibe for people. I think there are some folks who have big issues with that language. Yeah. And I hear that. So I don't mean it in like a a disrespectful way by any means, but that's the way I describe myself. I, I actually, it's so funny that you say that 100 and 100. I love that because I I had an interaction with someone where I I asked them a question from a place of privilege and ignorance. Like I asked them for something that like, that it was, it was a mistake. I shouldn't have done that. And they responded to me and they went, well, that's your white side talking. And I was like, it's not like you get to like my belly button and then it's like white (laughs) or like you get to my belly button and then it's dark. Like it's not like that. Like I am a whole, a whole human being. But it's, it's interesting because not until very recently have I really spent more time thinking intentionally about like, I am a whole human. I have my whole life always describe myself to everybody. I'll go, oh, I'm half Japanese, half Italian. I'm half Japanese, half Italian. I'm 50% Japanese. I'm 50% Italian. And I, I do that all the time. And I didn't realize until recently, like, oh, wow, I've really been thinking of my identity in segments and it's not. And it's, Mm. right, I'm 31. I'm just now starting to think about the fact that like, these pieces of my identity make up a whole entire person and that person is me. It's it's weird. It's a trip because it's that kind of identity work is like, oh my God, not the kind of identity work that I thought I was going to need to be doing. <laughs> I thought my issue was going to have to be getting over like people speaking to me in Spanish and then being disappointed when I don't speak to them in Spanish back. <laughs> That's great. Uh, so mixed kid, is that what you said? Mixed kid. Okay. What about from a professional lens? How would you define? I would say I'm a I'm a multi ethnic individual. Hmm. Yeah. What's the difference? <laughs> I I think a, a multiracial or multi ethnic. I use multi ethnic because I think ethnicity and race get conflated, and so I like to try to be specific. The difference for me is the like the politicalization of it. It's a more politically correct statement to say like, oh, I'm multi ethnic. Yeah. I mean, I guess part of the reason why we wanted to ask that question is because there seems to be different terms that people do use to to Jan's point previously about, you know, 100%, you know, 100% of each, right? Yeah, I mean, you are a whole person. It's not like you walk around like, you know, I don't know, I'm, I'm kind of thinking of the Phantom of the Opera right now with this half-white face and the mask on and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, that is, I think maybe that there's something in that too. Let me just kind of move on. And I want to just ask you, when you think about your identity, even just coming to a place now where you see yourselves, you see yourself as this whole person now, not so much as I'm half this and half that. How would you say or can you speak to how your identity has influenced your leadership style? You know, what do you draw upon from your mixed kid, multi-ethnic 
identity in how you know you show up as a leader? Yeah, that's a great question. It has a huge impact on the way that I show up as a leader. <laughs> My sister was making this joke around like we're half white and half East Asian. Like even though I think Okinawan's a little bit different, but it just it gets wrapped into Japanese. And so she's like, so if you're eating a privileged pie, like we're eating quite a bit of it. <laughs> I think about that constantly in my leadership, right? I had this conversation once with a mentor of mine, one of the mentors that I mentioned in the blog, where I was telling her about a fight that I got into with my an aunt on my dad's side. So she's white. I was telling her about this fight and I was like, yeah, and I'm never speaking to her again because she's this, that, and the other thing. And na, 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 na. And it was, a, it was around the murder of Trayvon Martin. We we had gotten to this this argument about, and she looked at me and she was like, "How you know, like how dare you?" And I was like, "What do you mean? Wait, how dare me? You mean how dare her for saying those terrible, awful things?" Like, and she was like, "No, how dare you?" She's like, "You were in a position to have a conversation with somebody who maybe is speaking out of ignorance, and you have the power to have a conversation with them, and you're you're blowing them off, you're brushing them off." When someone writes you, black woman, someone like me could never have that conversation, right? Or I would never be, I would never be in that space, right? Because she's not my aunt. Just that conversation really transformed the way that I thought about what it means to hold, to one, hold multiple identities and two, hold two kind of more privileged identities. And when it comes to my identity, right? Like we know there's lots of anti-Asian hate and oppression against API folks, for sure. But there, but you, I don't know, you, you can't tell me that there isn't privilege that comes with my identity. And so I think about that a lot. I think about if I, if I want to put my money where my mouth is, if I want to show up for my community, showing up for my community doesn't just mean like my API community. It's all my brothers and sisters of color. And she was so right. How dare I forsake the privilege of the way that I look, the access to the education I have, the spaces I'm allowed to occupy, how dare I forsake that because I'm like mad <laughs> or like my feelings were hurt or like I got into that fight. Like how dare I not try to work on what it means to set myself up to be in a place to say like, oh, that thing that you said was maybe pretty racist. Let me have like a conversation with you that's not going to trigger little t trigger either of us so that we can continue to have this conversation so that we can learn and grow together. And I think that is a huge influence in my leadership. What does that in terms of like how I see myself in the work, in terms of what I see as my responsibility, in terms of how I try to treat others with care and learning and growth, right? Especially because I was I was such a an angry little post-college student. Like I was like, I was like, we're gonna set the world on fire <laughs> kind of attitude. And just through all of the like remarkable mentors that I've had, it's like, girl, you have to relax. Like <laughs> take a beat, take a breath, try again, right? Yeah, my my identity has had a huge impact in the way that I I have developed my understanding of what it means to to show up for folks. Akemi, you talked earlier about how, you know, when you were in school, you were sort of the role model for your siblings and so there were some like <laughs> boundaries that you created for yourself in terms of like how you would show up. Like is there sort of a, an expectation now, you know, as you're talking about your own leadership approach and your style and how you think about being a leader, like, does that expectation still exist to be a certain way, to be a role model to, you know? Yeah, I think it does. Not with my siblings. 
right, <laughs> my right, siblings right. would be like, I don't give a single crap what you choose to do with your like, I'm out here living me, right? But I, I think because I spend so much of my time in education spaces, and even at Leap, I'm still spending a lot of time in education spaces, but particularly like, right, where we're, we just finished our Emerge Leadership Retreat Week, They're, our college students are now in the, midst, in the middle of their internships. I'm spending a lot of time in spaces with folks who are younger than I am. I think about it constantly. I also encourage in every program that I'm in for folks to think about it constantly. I go, I talk a lot about like, how do you take up space for yourself? But then how do you also create space for the folks who are coming up after you? And yeah. so, yeah, I would say that, yeah, there, there's still definitely, I, I don't know if I would call it a pressure. I would say like, I take it as a responsibility to say like, in what ways am I going to push the system? And then how am I going to protect folks who come up behind? So again, I'm going to talk about this mentor so much. My first mentor, she once described it to me as like, she's like, as you make your way up, She's like, you better be opening up windows, throwing down ropes, setting up ladders, like grabbing people's hands, holding them like carry. Right. It's this idea of like you need to be as you are rising, you need to you better be helping other people rise. So, yeah, I think I feel that really deeply. Yeah. So it's not a pressure or like a burden. It's more your sense of responsibility. It's an honor. It's an honor. Are you, oh my gosh. Yeah. Like I think of it, I think about, so like our, our most recent Emerge cohort right now, right? So there, there was a period of time where I was like, I cannot work with college students. Like they're too much for me. I, you know, I did it for like seven, seven or eight years um, in, a, in a previous job. And I was like, I just need a break from college students. Like I just can't. But this group that we, that we have for our Emerge cohort, they're fabulous. They're such powerful young people and they're so cool. They're so cool. They're so smart. They're so compassionate. I watched them care in really deep ways for one another. I watched them show up with open minds for us. Like I just, and to experience that, that with those college students. And then I think about all the middle school students who I worked with now who are like going to graduating high school and going to college and watching all of the phenomenal things. Oh my God, it's an honor. It's an honor to have been able to like help hold space for them or make space for that. Like it just, I just, oh, definitely you- not a burden anymore. Yeah. <laughs> what do you notice about that next generation? And special. And- they're going to change the game, man. <laughs> like they're going to, they're going to take all of it and knock it on its head. I've been having lots of conversations with folks around like work-life balance and working under capitalism and and what that means. And I I think the stories that I'm hearing about Gen Z are just, man, they're just, they're just setting great boundaries. They're like, I don't, I'm not going to let you take advantage of me. I'm not going to let you take me for granted. Like if this isn't it, then this isn't it. I'm out. Like, I I think part of that is like a disillusionment with like society right now. Right. Um, so they're like, well, we don't really have a choice. I'm not going to pretend like, you know, millennials are very like, we could be anything. And then Gen Z was like, you thought you could be, but it turns out you can't. So we're not even going to let you try to trick us. Right. I'm really, really excited. And I'm really, really curious to see the ways in which they will knock things on their head. Like I, my favorite Gen Z story is the Gen Zers who bought out the Trump rally in Oklahoma 
they bought like they all got on TikTok and then collectively bought like reserved all of these tickets to this Trump rally in Oklahoma. And the Trump like Trump was like, look at this is amazing. Like we've sold out. It's so da 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 da. And he rolls up and like a hundred people are there in this like ten thousand person arena because Gen Z like reserved all these tickets and then just didn't show up. Like it's like that kind of like that kind of organizing, I think, is so, so interesting. Or there was um Oh, my my other favorite one is this happened in China, I think, um, during the COVID outbreak. Kids who were sick still had to do school. And so they were doing school on their iPads through like these apps. And collectively, these kids rated this app so low on the app store that it got taken off the iPad. So then they could they didn't have to do their homework. <laughs> I was like, this is amazing. Like the, co- the collective thinking and the leveraging of technology, I think is like, oh, I just like I watched this unfurl. This was in like maybe like April of 2020, right? Where all these kids were like, you're, we have to sit in these hospitals and quarantine and whatever. You're going to try to make us do homework. We're not doing homework. And then they went on the app store and collectively rated this app like negative stars. And they got take. I just, I'm like, this is so interesting to me. Like, what can we learn from this kind of organizing? That's so powerful. So I, I really think Gen Z is going to, they're going to take things and, and turn them on their head. I'm very, very curious to see how they do it. Yeah, thanks for that. I'm, I feel so much better about our future. <laughs> Me too, right? Yeah, I think it's going to be pretty interesting to see what's going to happen because they can utilize technology in ways, you know, and they're so much more savvier about really, you know, coming together in that way. However, you know, that could be another, this could be another conversation in itself. I mean, sometimes there's still value in the old ways, right? Like, you know, face-to-face contact, (laughs) for example. 100%. Kind of speaking about that, you know, Akemi, I think this has been a great conversation where we're at a place where, you know, where we need to start wrapping up and so fascinating in terms of our conversation with you. But I'm also reflecting on, you know, the conversations that we've had with the other two leaders that we spoke to for this particular, I'll say, series of podcast episodes around being mixed race and exactly did what I had hoped to see just really speaks to the nuance and the experiences that everybody has is going to be slightly different and giving us things that we hadn't even thought about too. And and I think what you were sharing about, you know, just kind of the privilege that you can hold and being told that, you know, how you were able to take that and to also think about, you know, what do you then going forward as a leader do with that as well too. These are the kind of things that I think are just so not only important, but just so fascinating to hear as part of your experience as, you know, a leader in our community as well, too. So just want to say thank you for coming on with us and having this conversation. Thank you both so much for having me. (laughs) It was great to have you. You were so fun and energetic, and we really appreciate you sharing so many like vivid stories. Yeah, about your background. Oh, they'll stick with us forever now. <laughs> oh, girl, you want to talk about identity development, man? I I got so so many poignant things that rattle around in my brain all the all the time. <laughs> and that's a wrap. Thank you for joining Jan and I for this season three episode of the Leap Podcast. Stay connected with Leap by joining Leap's mailing list at leap.org. And follow us on Leap social media on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you really enjoyed this podcast, please donate to Leap. Thank you all for tuning in today. We look forward to being with you next time.